we are defining a mental health crisis as an inability to focus, function, think in a way that you would be able to if you weren't experiencing some type of challenge or trauma or barrier, right? And so it's because mental health, you're, you're mentally healthy when you can think clearly, when you can articulate yourself you know, clearly. Um, when you're not able to because of what's happening to you in the world around you or in your life experiences, then that's when you're having a challenge. Welcome to Education Rx. The education system in the U.S. is sick, and we all need to find ways to heal it. I'm Holly Bronson. I'm Shannon Donaway. Together, we have almost 50 years of experience working as professionals in a school setting. We may not have all the answers, but we're looking for people who have a piece of the solution puzzle. This is Education Rx. All right, so we're back tonight. <laughs> episode eight. The last episode of the season. Woo-hoo. And tonight we are talking to Angela Griffin. Right. And she works on Board of Education up in Washington, as well as with an agency. And she'll explain, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, Ebel, Ebel Agency. So she'll explain that when we introduce her. And she's got a couple areas of expertise. She works with preschool education in the state. And then she also works with the state Board of Education on the dropout rate and working with ways to solve dropouts. And interestingly enough, she mentioned that post-COVID, the dropout rate has risen, but for new reasons. So she's going to talk to us about that. That'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm super interested in what she has to say. And I think when we're talking about preschool, you and I were kind of conversing about how there's a lot of people on social media and online talking about how preschool and kindergartners should not be doing academic work, but that it should be more play-based and or just exposure. And so we're going to ask her what her take is on that. We have read some different research articles and just people who are giving their opinion. And I'm curious to see what she has to say about that. Yeah, I am too. I want to know what the latest is on that thought. So let's talk to Angela. All right. So we are talking to Dr. Angela Griffin tonight. Can you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do? And your Yes, yes. Hello, everyone. So I actually currently am a CEO of a nonprofit that provides early learning and school-age child care in the greater Seattle area. I also serve on Washington State Board of Education, and I also am a mother, a wife. I, I serve on several other boards and committees, mostly focused around working with kids and on behalf of children in our state. Tell me the name of your agency, because I don't know if I was butchering it. <laughs> oh, our, the, the agency, the, the nonprofit agency I run is called Launch. We were formerly okay. called the Day School Association, and we've been in existence for 45 years now in the Seattle area. Oh, okay, wow. so I said Ebel or Ebel, and I was oh, totally wrong. <laughs> well, actually, well, I, didn't, I didn't speak to that. Ebel is the organization that I provide co- coaching and consulting for. Oh, so, so you okay. were right. So yeah, so I actually oh goodness, got, you're got, all over the place. Yeah, so I actually provide executive and leadership coaching and consulting to mainly people who work with children, um, but in the, yeah, in the education sector as well. 
Interesting. All right. Well, you and I had a chance to talk on the phone before we did this Zoom interview. And one of the things we were talking about that I thought was really interesting and I think very powerful is that in Washington, you were able with your agency when COVID hit and we went into quarantine, you kept your kids in person. Yes. Yep. For, so for launch for our early learning and after school programs, when the governor announced that schools were going to be closed, we got a call saying that we need childcare to stay open. And, and then also we received funding to provide that childcare for free, to mainly to essential workers. So we, for my organization, we actually had a partnership with Seattle Children's Hospital to provide childcare to the, the staff that were working in that hospital. And then you know, our families who we were already working with we continue to be able to offer them childcare so that they can keep working. And you guys were probably doing that because they were classified as first responders. Yes, first responders, essential workers. So essential workers, it was a, there actually was a broader category of essential workers. So people who were working in grocery stores, people who were, right. So, so wherever there was an essential need, basic need that people needed to have access to, Mm -hmm. then those were classified as essential workers. And what, what happened for child care is we advocated to be considered essential workers as well. So, so we, we, we leaned into that language, that naming convention to say, well, we're essential, right? And now we're continuing to advocate to reflect the essential need for child care to help the economy continue to go because people need us to be able to work. Right. And in our first episode with Dr. Karen Beard, one of the reasons we started with her was we found this article where she and her colleagues identified teachers as essential workers slash first, or yeah, first responders. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I think didn't really come up until after COVID but so many teachers were trying to teach when their kids were <laughs> just in the other room trying to learn. And that was tricky. I bet they could have used some childcare. <laughs> yes, could have, definitely could have used childcare. And we we definitely reached out to offer that childcare services to families as they needed. So even teachers, any anyone who was considered an essential worker, we we made try to make space in our programs. And and you know, we actually ended up forming some coalitions between childcare providers. So in the greater Seattle area, many of the childcare providers who were in competition for decades are now working together in partnership. I just had a meeting today with a group of childcare workers who met with the Seattle, with the city of Seattle for the second year in a row to advocate for funding to offer. Our, our child care workers bonuses. We're actually trying to get some dollars to provide recruitment bonuses because it's been really hard to hire, just like all the other sectors, right? Just like the education system is struggling to find teachers. We're also find, try, struggling to find teachers to be in our preschool classrooms and our in our after-school programs as well. Oh, I hope childcare providers across the country hear this and get inspired and get ideas from it because that is a beautiful system you're creating. Yes. It's necessary, definitely necessary. And, right. and it, I mean, it's slow moving though, right? Like that's that's what's hard about it. Um, but, but, you know, what we have seen is healthcare workers, police departments, you know, our K-12 education system has been able to leverage unions and, and other um, entities to help them advocate. And so our preschool workers are having to band together 
and 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 have a common language and a collective action effort to reach out to local and state and even federal governments to be able to sustain our businesses and offer our essential care. And in our state, our legislators passed an act called the Fair, Fair Start Act a couple of years ago. I want to say, 20, where are we in? 2022. So it was 2020, 2020, the end of 2020 going into 2021. Okay. They, they passed the Fair Start Act, which provided a variety of supports and services and resources, um, changed some of the regulations and created opportunities for child care programs to be able to be more sustained. And that that was really due to Senator Claire Wilson and our state representative Sin. Um, they were the strongest advocates in our state to, to push for action to ensure that child care workers were supported beyond the pandemic. Oh, I hope politicians around the country are hearing that and, and jump on that bandwagon. That is very important. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds like your state is doing a lot, which is great. We, we love to see it replicated around the nation. Absolutely. We need that nationwide. And did you feel like post-COVID now that, I mean, everybody was in quarantine and then we were still, a lot of people were quarantined or virtual or remote. And then we kind of came back and last year was a little bit of a hot mess while we tried to get everybody reacclimated. But this is kind of our first year really back kind of like normal quotes. What are you seeing with preschoolers when you're looking at your kiddos that got to stay in person versus students that didn't get to go? We are seeing a difference. And, you know, that's interesting. You mentioned that there was data that has been presented through the National Education Policy, NAEP. There's data that just came out about educational results across the state. Mm -hmm. And the results for Washington State are showing that our preschool age kids were Read, were more ready for kindergarten in 2021, 2022 than they've been. Like there's been an increase in their readiness and particularly for kids who have been historically marginalized. And so, you know, again, we had our state board of education meeting today and we looked at that data and I was able to share that from my knowledge and expertise around working with children in early learning it's, I believe it's because we saw kids continue to be in those learning environments, right? Preschool stayed open. Preschool was still available. And even in many communities, like our, several of our rural communities and some of the urban communities, preschool was continued to be offered virtually. So there was an assumption that preschool age kids, like I heard you say, like, they, you know, they were in the other room, right? While, while parents were on Zooms trying to work. Well, they also had access to that virtual learning or they had access to be in person in most communities. So they were able to still continue to work on their social emotional learning, their developmental milestones, their academic milestones to prepare them for kindergarten. And that that data showed that they did much better academically as far as being prepared for kindergarten than you know some of the other age groups who were struggling when they they came back. That same agency that you listed has been putting out some very interesting reports lately about fourth grade and eighth grade math and reading scores that are at a historic low. Yes. So it's interesting to know that the preschool scores are coming out higher. That is very encouraging yes. because we have a group somewhere in the middle. <laughs> 
that's really struggling and we're as educators having to figure out how to meet that need. So it's good to know that our preschoolers maybe are, are getting a little advantage. How did that look for preschool to be online? Like that seems very difficult to keep a preschooler engaged online. Several programs have, they had some training around it, right? I mean, similar to the K-12 educators, but they, the activities that they were doing were so engaging, right? And, and I actually had the opportunity in, in my program to do some uh, virtual reading projects with kids, re reading experiences with kids while they were at home, cooking projects with kids while they were at home. And they were completely engaged, right? They, 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 they wanted to be in front of the screen, right? So our younger kids wanted to be in front of they're the ones that we try to say that, you know, don't put them in front of the screen. They want to be in front of the screen. And so then, you know, you, you have to have activities to, to keep them engaged. And then where there was an opportunity for parents to be involved in that engagement, then that made a difference. But then, you know, some of the other elements for preschool age kids that continue to exist were home visiting. So then, you know, there, there were individuals who were able to go out and, and visit the the homes of, of yeah, preschool age children and continue to connect with families. There, there was quite a bit of virtual engagement with preschool age families, particularly kids who are in ECAP programs or Head Start programs. So they, they continue to have those supports that they have when they're in their, their classroom environment in person as well. And so I think that that continuity of supports and services and, and, and learning and resource access made, made a huge difference for our preschool age kids. I think that's absolutely true. I think that's part of why we're seeing those real low scores for fourth and eighth graders. Some of those older students, they were in their families. If there were multiple people needing the computer, sometimes they weren't prioritized or maybe they didn't have access. Maybe there wasn't a parent around to make sure that they got on and got things done. And so that middle group, I think a lot of it was they, they didn't have good access or they weren't engaged and so it, I think that is definitely a predictor with those preschoolers. If they were engaged and they had people making sure they were getting on there, that's amazing. Yeah. And they don't need as much engagement time as K-12, right? And right. so, you know, the, the older kids get, the more time they, they actually spend in classrooms or doing practice assignments or homework and so forth. But for our early learners, learners they, they just need a couple, an hour, a couple of hours of activities for them to develop and grow. So, you know, that that makes a, a difference as well as far as engagement time. That's a really good point. And it sounds like there was some good training for your teachers. Yes. yes. Which is different than we've seen in other districts. Yes. I think that the people would have given training. They just didn't have a clue what to do. Like mm -hmm. it was so different for everyone, right? Like, and depending on your culture and your state and your access and all those things. I think a lot of people didn't get any training. They just had to figure it out. <laughs> Everyone had to pivot. Everyone had to pivot, right? And and pivot pretty quickly. And so, you know, I I, I applaud those who were able to think strategically, think adaptively of ways to make sure that our, our kids continue to engage and learn and, and also that our teachers continue to be supported. It, it was it was hard. It, it was it was hard for everyone. I mean, I, I had the opportunity to see it from preschool all the way through post-secondary. And so it just, you know, it looked different all the way through and, and people struggle. What I think I like the most about this opportunity, I try to always find the strength, right? Is that we we learned 
how to provide learning in a variety of different ways. And so you mentioned that I attended this conference last week. It was our National State Board of Education Conference, and it was around student re-engagement. And so one of the learnings that came out of this is that we can re-engage students virtually, right? And so where students historically were dropping out, and if they didn't show up to a school building, then they just were taken off of the, the, the roster and we, we weren't trying to engage them, or, or if we try to engage them, it's getting them back into a building. Well, now that engagement is happening virtually. If we can get them online to be in a learning program and, and take some courses or you know, meet with a teacher and, and take a test. Or, you know, right there. So we, we've adapted, it, it, it pushed us to be adaptive. And, and you know, that's one of the silver linings of all of this. It is a silver lining. I know Shannon and I, when we were working at a middle school in Colorado, we had a student who had really, I guess, extreme anxiety and social anxiety and just struggled to be at school. And if we would have had these kinds of setups for them back then, I bet that would have been a huge support for them. They could have participated virtually um, in a way that they weren't able to do in a classroom because they wouldn't have so much anxiety of being in person. So Mm -hmm. I do think it's good. And there are different agencies like Khan Academy or other virtual learning platforms that have really found a lot of success, not just in our country, but around the world. So I think It's good to have options. We're all unique, right? We need options. That's what I was thinking. And I'm also really interested in this answer and what you think about this. Many educators now are exploring the concept of waiting to introduce academics until first or second grade and citing that research says that academics are taught too early and they negatively impact students. So what are your thoughts on this? And do you have any ideas. Yes, I I have seen that research and the only concern I've had is the the equity in it, right? And so, you know, because most of that research is guiding towards parents being the first teacher and so that if they're in an environment where they are getting their social emotional skills built up and you know mainly like our pre-K programs and kindergarten programs are typically more focused on social emotional learning and in helping to ensure students are know how to interact with other students and with their teacher and and how to be, behave in the classroom environment, how to manage transitions throughout a school day and and so forth. And that is great learning. They they need that as part of their their developmental process and also. One of the reasons we have historically seen our kids, particularly our kids of color, our kids who have special education needs, our kids who may have experienced trauma fall behind is because they need an earlier start with some of that academic learning. And so, you know, in some of the small, simple ways that we can teach kids academics, right? Some of the fun ways we can teach kids academics. So when I mentioned I had the virtual cooking class, well, when I'm talking to those preschoolers about what they're cooking, I'm saying, you know, we're going to put one cup, right? So everyone find the, the cup that has a number one on it. And so they're like looking for the one cup and, you know, look for the one tablespoon. A tablespoon has a B in it. 
not just, so a teaspoon is TSP, a tablespoon is TBS, right? And so they're looking for, and so there, there's this academic educational component that's there, that's still part of the fun. Um, and so that, you know, and they remember those tenants when we teach those, teach those elements to them. And there's just kids who we need to start as early as possible because they may not have that learning at home. They may not be able to speak the academic language. That's, that's another piece that gets missed is that also research has shown that the academic language is typically a language that is spoken in predominantly white homes, right? It's, you know, and so when academic language isn't the same in the African-American home, the Native American home, the Hispanic home, the Asian home, then that language gets taught in the classroom. And so it's important to make sure that kids have access to that academic language early. And so that's, you know, and I'll give you an example. An example is that I cook in my home. When I cook in my home, I don't typically measure things out. I just, and so I taught my kids to cook. I've taught them, you take the salt and the pepper and you season it to taste, right? <laughs> so if we sit and we read a recipe, if they're in a, if they're in a, in a classroom and they're reading a math text and it's saying, okay, if you need to put one tablespoon of this and two tablespoons of this and a cup of this, because that's what you read in textbooks, right. that's the language that they're not getting at home. Mom just dumps it in there. <laughs> and, you know, and I look at the colors and I, I taste it and it's good. So that's that's some of the, the learning experience that's important for kids to get in the classroom as early as possible. I think those are really good examples and ways for just any listener to be able to connect to why preschool is vital. Because I've also seen students who don't get any preschool and sometimes not even kindergarten and they come into first grade and they're a little behind and it's hard for them and they feel very like a duck out of water, right? Because they're not familiar and the people around them, the majority of the students are familiar. And that can be socially a challenge that sets them up for feeling like they're not a part of the group. And that is definitely an equity issue that we need to be thinking about, that we're giving all students a chance to know the language or the mindset, have some of those classroom-based skills. And really this whole ep- this whole season, not just this episode, but all seasons, we're really looking at how social emotional issues were kind of on the rise and we were recognizing their impact on academics and then COVID hit and it just exploded, right? And so now we have this backlash of how do we find that balance between giving good social emotional curriculum quotes, but <laughs> really building it in so that it's just part of how we behave in in the world, in the classroom that we're teaching kids about when you're coming in from recess, how to settle down and get ready to learn. When you're having a bad day or somebody does something unkind to you, what's the correct response? All those social emotional pieces are so important. And honestly, we've all seen that poster, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten. It's true. It's kindergarten such a huge place for making a foundation for social emotional learning. And as you're talking about some of those key components of why it's powerful, that is part of the academic process. If we know how to self-regulate, if we know how to advocate for what we need or when we need help, those are key components that can cause students to have more success in an academic setting. 
And when we don't get them into preschool or they don't have that same exposure, it can have long-term impacts. Yes, most definitely. Yeah. most definitely. And on the other end of this, you also talked to me that you're working with your state board of education about dropouts. Yes. Well, so like the other end of the spectrum, right? <laughs> yes. Well, we're, we're working on quite a bit as a state board of education. Our, our main responsibility is to determine what the high school graduation process will be for students in our state. And so, you know, we help set the standards and the, the credit requirements and, and we're, we're working on pathways, graduation pathways for students. One of the issues that has come up as part of, you know, experience from the pandemic is how many kids have gone missing through COVID, since COVID. And so there was a study done by the Bellwether Group that identified a significant number, significant number of students throughout the state, throughout the country, who are no longer being counted on school district enrollment records. And so, you know, there's states trying to figure out where those students are. And then once those students are identified, then how do we get them re-engaged back in school if they have dropped out completely? How do we help them make you know get engaged but have a pathway that could lead to graduation for them, particularly if they're if they're over eighteen already? And so, so that is a, a body of work that in our state of Washington we actually have a, a whole reengagement program. We have several reengagement programs. One is called Open Doors, and that's where in in several of our school districts there is a liaison that's identified to go help find students and then get them back in school. We have another program called the Bridges Program, and that's where school districts partner with community-based organizations to offer a variety of services to help students re-engage in school. And then we've also passed a few policies in our states. So one is that mental health can be counted as an excused absence. If a, a student is having a, a mental health crisis or a mental health issue, or just need a mental health day, then it can be an excused absence. And then also we've shifted our truancy processes. So there was a truancy board or there were ways that parents found themselves in a truancy court if their kids were, were tardy or absent too much. And so now there are truancy community groups that actually bring together community members to look at what is happening with individual children around truancy and help to provide some resources to parents and families so students can find ways to show up. So, so talking about your Bridges program, what are some of the community agencies that your program works with? Throughout the state, it looks different and depending on what communities you're in. So Boys and Girls Clubs, YMCAs, you know, there, there are several groups that work specifically with, with students who have been incarcerated that there's there are groups that work with young girls and boys who have been involved in sex trafficking. There's 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 a variety of connection points with organizations that are specific to meet some of the needs for kids who have disengaged for a variety of reasons. That's heartbreaking. Like when you talk about that you're dealing with students sex trafficking, like those are the things we hard to even hear, but it's a reality and how amazing that you guys are really identifying those things and finding ways to bridge that because we need to be more equitable and thinking about every little corner of the world and what people need. So I think that's really powerful. 
Yeah. Yeah. All, all of our kids need to have the have access to education. And there there are some life factors that happen that create barriers for them to, to be successful academically. And so there are many programs and, and community-based organizations that are are working, you know, they're providing mentoring, they're providing coaching, they're providing a variety of housing, a variety of support supports to students so that they can finish through their high, high school academics and even engage in some post-secondary activities so they can live beyond high school. Right. I was doing, in my undergrad work, I was doing um, a report for one of my classes and I had to do a, a big study on how education impacts sexual trauma. So people who are rape victims or sexual traffic victims typically tend to be less educated. Mm -hmm. And we know that the more education people get, the less likely they are to be victimized. And I think that's a really powerful thing. We've got to get kids through school and hopefully into some form of higher education for the empowerment that it brings. To them and the the ability to know how to find resources and the ability to know how to advocate for themselves. So that is very powerful. Yeah. And unfortunately, through the pandemic, many of those kids had had those experiences exasperated for them because they didn't have someone to reach out to. They were isolated, right? And and they didn't have people to support them, people to speak to. I mean, they're they, there was a rise in, you know, sexual assault, sexual abuse, and, and a child abuse as a whole, because for some many kids, the school was a place of escape. That was where they were able to leave that home environment and go be with, with peers and be with teachers and, and have a sense of safety for at least a portion of their day. And many kids, they, they lost that sense of safety. I feel like we've heard that from a number of people. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any suggestions for our parents that are listening? Do you have anything to share about how they can help keep their students in school and get them to finish? Well, so for parents, you know, depending on the age, because, you know, we, we are re-engagement in our state. Many So when I was at this conference, many states are only focused on high school kids when they're talking about dropouts and re-engagement. They're not noticing the the patterns until high school and then they're not noticing them really until 11th or 12th grade and so in our state we start looking at those patterns in kindergarten we start looking at them through kids aren't showing up every day if they're not if they're showing up late if they're missing certain basic needs that most kids have then you know we're making sure we understand where the where those gaps may be impacting their their learning that may lead to them not continuing with school. And so an advice, some advice that I have for parents is to make sure that you are accessing the resources that are available to you in your community so that your kid can be prioritized in their education, right? And so, you know, most school districts have access to free and reduced lunch if you can't afford to purchase and, and provide lunch for kids because kids need to eat throughout the day just like adults need to eat, right? Like yeah. how many of us miss miss breakfast and lunch? You know, we're, <laughs> we're typically having access to some type of food. So, you know, when kids go to school, we expect them to learn they don't have it. So just making sure that you're accessing those resources that are available. All schools typically have a counselor or a nurse. Or, you know, now there are many school districts are providing mental health and crisis response 
people to staff to be able to support those needs. And so, you know, just taking advantage of those resources within your school community is, is really important. Asking, you know, right, if you have a need, don't be embarrassed, try not to be embarrassed to, to ask because there, you know, there are resources that are being allocated and we need people accessing them. And, you know, yeah. yeah. And then the other is, is just, you know, talking to kids makes a difference in how they, they grow developmentally. So as early as possible, you know, reading to them and just sitting and having conversations with them. You probably heard this from, from Trace Moore, who talks about family engagement. You know, we talk a lot about asking open-ended questions, but that's important. When, I, when our, you know, my middle schooler, it gets picked up after school, you know, I don't just say, so how was your day? She's going to say, fine. <laughs> so right. I'll, ask, I'll ask a deeper question to get her to talk, even you know, when she doesn't want to, but just, you know, to, to open up and have that relationship. So you mentioned up. that one of the things you guys have changed in your state is allowing mental health days. Yeah. Then you also talked about patterns that build starting early on. Are you finding that the mental health day option is getting abused or misused in any way? Does it start early where kids or parents are like, I don't want to get up and take you in. So we're going to call a mental health day. Like, is any of that happening? Are you feeling like those options are actually being used appropriately? We're actually not seeing people use them as much as they should. So that that's so we're we're really helping. I mean, we're putting it out in newsletters and communicating it out that that is an option for kids and explaining what you know a mental health crisis means, right? And what having a mental health day means, so that they are taking advantage of. But you know, we're also tracking those absences, and so you know, parents can get a printout. Well, the school actually will have a printout that says. You know, this student missed 10 days and two of those days were excused absence. And one of those days was mental health. And the other was, you know, sickness. Right. So then there's there are ways to track and see. And right now we're not seeing as many people, as many students in our state take advantage of that mental health day option. You know, so, I mean, they'll, they'll typically just say that they're sick, but it will be helpful to see that mental health tracking because it, then we can advocate more, for more mental health workers. and and supports within our schools because we we know that it's it's a challenge for our kids. In our in episode 2 of this season, we one of the teachers was talking about how her district in the 2021 school year intentionally lowered the academic expectations for teachers and students and did some early release and had a Wednesday off every week and their scores while other schools in the district that didn't do that there, the other schools saw a drop in reading and math scores, but their school sustained. Now they didn't, you know, improve, but they sustained. And the whole concept this season is we're exploring what is that impact of social emotional learning and skills? How does that impact academics? And we're seeing from the people that we're talking to and the research that we're doing, there's a huge impact. And I think talking about mental health days and understanding when is a mental health crisis? What does that look like? And why is it powerful for me to do some self-care and stay home and relax and manage this? How does that impact test taking, the ability to absorb new knowledge and hold on to it? Those are all really powerful and real issues. And I think as you're talking about that, it's really kind of bringing it full circle for us. Mm -hmm. 
How do you define the mental health crisis? Yes. Well, I mean, it, it, it makes a difference within the school day as well, right? And so teachers having the opportunity to identify when their students in their classroom are not functioning in the way that they should be because there's something happening in their environment or in their life where they're just, you can tell, you can see if they're zoned out or you can see if they're not showing up in the way that they normally would show up on you know, a regular day, then that's the opportunity to, to say, you know, maybe you're having some challenges right now and, you know, and, and you, you could benefit from some help, right? So, I mean, there, there are, uh, there are a variety of resources. I mean, our, another resource that I've seen some school districts offer is there's a, a, a coaching organization. I'm, I'm not going to remember the name of the organization. I apologize. But they're, they're, they're contracting with a variety of service providers to offer, like one is a coaching program through text message. If a, once a parent gives kids permission, gives permission then the student can send a text message to a mental health counselor and just share, you know, I'm I'm having a really bad day, and they can talk to them through text oh, message. There, you know, there there are just there are more resources that are being made available for our our kids through the school districts that need to just be broad, right? Need to be yes. shared. You know, they cost money, they take time and and, and resources, but it's valuable, it's necessary right now. And how does your district or state define the mental health crisis for family? Um, we are defining a mental health crisis as an inability, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase here because there is a, a whole series. Sure, yeah, yeah. The, but it's an inability to focus, function, think in a way that you would be able to if you weren't experiencing some type of challenge or trauma or barrier, right? And so it's because mental health, you're, you're mentally healthy when you can think clearly, when you can articulate yourself, you know, clearly, um, when you're not able to because of what's happening to you in the world around you or in your life experiences, then that's when you're having a challenge, right? And so so when a, a, a child wakes up and, and they're just, brain is foggy, they're crying, they're stressed out, you know, they, they don't believe that they can handle the, the learning for the day then that's the opportunity to to ask some questions you know so is are you are you are you sick are you feeling ill you know do you have a headache do you have a stomach ache do you have a cough you know so it's it's ruling out that sickness but then you know having that conversation with you know how are you feeling mentally can you think clearly can you articulate yourself can you process information that is going to be shared with you and helping them make some decisions to make you stay home and rest and, and relax and gather themselves. I really like that idea. Well, we all need it. You know, I, I know in my, the workforce, the childcare workforce, in my organization, you know, with the pandemic, we increased our EAP benefits, our employee assistant benefits for our staff to be able to access counseling and professional support. And so, you know, we need to be able to do that for, for children as well. Yeah. And that's been a big piece of some of our episodes too, saying that teachers also need some social mm-hmm. emotional support throughout their day, throughout their week, throughout the school year. Yes. 
most definitely. And skills to know when they're feeling off or when their students are feeling off, how to support them in getting, you know, calmed back down or getting in a good state for learning, which I mean, our kids could be out on the playground having a crazy day and maybe, you know, somebody stole their lunch money or maybe somebody isn't letting them play. And then they come in and they're really upset because it was hard and they felt isolated or victimized and they come in and now they're like, okay, let's do some math. (laughs) And just taking, you know, a couple of minutes, three or four minutes to help the entire class do some deep breaths or settle back in or, you know, whatever it is that whatever curriculum they're using or whatever process they're using. And I think a lot of teachers didn't know what that would even look like. Mm-hmm. when they were in COVID and quarantine. And then when we came back and we had had kids out of classrooms and they're coming back into the classroom, it wasn't just the students struggling to get used to that again. It was teachers. It was a very challenging time for educators. And I think we don't want to go on and on about COVID. We all want to move on, but it, it, it does have an impact. And we do need to shine a light on that and figure out how we're going to move forward. And I think like you're talking about, it's not just having the teachers understand what a mental health crisis looks like or how that impacts their student, but it's the families and the students understanding what that looks like and how it impacts themselves so that they can identify when it's not a good day to learn and when they really do need to do some self-care and work through some things. And I know that there are some agencies that you can pay to get mental health support online, but it's amazing that you're talking about your state is making some of those things available as well. It is costly. And I know when we were going through some of that, my youngest son was in high school and he was having some issues with anxiety and just depression about, is there even going to be a world for me to grow up into? Like that I, you know, why would I bother with education when, I mean, it might all go away. And I was looking at different resources since we couldn't go in person and they were very, very expensive. And I think families who don't have any extra money, that is not something that they're going to prioritize over food or rent Right. And so the fact that your state is making that available is something every state should learn from because it's powerful. Yes. Yes. I also learned in the conference that there are many states that are looking at climate surveys and how they can use some surveys to understand the classroom environment, the school environment, the district environment to see where they may need to provide certain resources to to their kids and their families. And so I, I think that's a, a, another advantage that's coming out of this the pandemic. It's like, because we can't just go forth as if nothing <laughs> happened, right? There is no going back to what we thought was normal. So, so I think looking at those climates, looking at the environments, the learning environments as they are now and figuring out where we need to make some adaptations is really important. And at that conference, are you finding that what you're seeing in your state with students that kind of have gone off grid or students that aren't, the schools aren't having them on record and, and finding them and getting them reengaged, is that a national trend? Are you finding from other states and other districts that everybody's kind of feeling that? Everyone's feeling it's a, it's a national trend. You know, and, and so that they're, they're, everyone's looking for solutions. Washington was... Washington State was seen as a model to replicate. And then Utah also has a a model. They actually, in 2014, they put into statute this program called Check and Connect. 
And so Check and Connect is, is in every school building, there is someone who is looking at the student's attendance behavior and course completion, and then providing mentoring for students who show up as, as you know, having below, having failing grades, you know, D or F grades, who have high absences, who have high behavioral incidences. And so that's, that is a model that has been shown to be effective to prevent dropouts, kids dropping out from school. And so, you know, it's, it's a model that Utah has implemented and it's going really well. And so there, you know, school districts were just looking to see what, what's possible across the state for them to, to try for, for their kids. I think it's really powerful that across our nation, all educators identifying that if we have a situation happening that we're not sure how to manage, instead of trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat, it's a good idea to look and see what other states are doing and finding those states that have figured something out or districts or schools that have figured something out that's really working and tap into that. There's no need to reinvent the wheel when somebody's figured it out. Grabbing a hold of that and pulling it in can be so powerful, especially because all the ins and outs have sort of been worked out already. And if you're having a big issue in your district or your school, that's a quick way to start turning the tide. Yes, there's there's a lot of learning out there. Well, we never stop. And you're talking about how the daycare programs have now joined forces and are working together instead of being competitive. And I think on every level of education, from daycare all the way through our post-graduation and our students in special ed who stay in our system through the age of 21, we need to be working together. We need to be bridging the differences in culture and the way that we approach education to work together and find solutions so that we can move forward and make some headway. Most definitely. I agree. That's what, that's what we're doing. And that's even our motto at the end of our episodes. Together we can do better. Together we can do better. Yes, I agree. Together we can do better. Collective impact, I think, has grown over the past few years because, you know, um, we, we can't do this work independently. No organization, no school building, no school district, no state right, can, can really do this work independently. We, we have to share the knowledge and share the practice and, and provide each other support for us to see our, our children and our families be successful. And we need to really be focused on equity, whether it's cultural, whether it's financial, whether it's race or religion, all of those things. We need to find ways to be equitable so that everybody has access Everybody has support. And we're only going to do that if we join hands across this nation and really prioritize education. And one of the things that we try to just, I don't know, drive home every time we must sound like we're on a soapbox and we are, but <laughs> I think that these children are going to be the leaders tomorrow. And if we don't recognize how important education is in helping them develop to be skilled, competent leaders, when we're, you know, in our nursing homes, we're going to be worried, right? <laughs> so we need to really invest in this. So whether you're an educator, or you're a politician, or you're a parent, or you're a neighbor, or you work in a community organization, educating students is all of our jobs. Yes, I agree. Yes, we're, we're, we're building out our workforce, we're building out our communities, right? People, people make up communities. And so if a community is successful, 
it's because of how we raise our kids to to thrive in those communities. And they and they get that in their early learning experiences. They they learn it in their K-12 experiences. It should extend into their post-secondary experiences. Yes, it's crucial. Well, did we miss anything? Is there anything else that you want to throw in at the end or something important that we might have missed? I just want to reiterate that it's it's it is important for us to look at the spectrum of learning for our children as early as possible and that and we're we're considering that as they're growing developmentally that there are a variety of points when we have impact. And so the main focus that I started with was with that early learning impact and that we can prepare our kids as early as possible to be successful in their K-12 education. And for kids who have access to preschool, really hasn't shown that any particular model is better, right? And so there's a variety of preschool education models that kids can get a couple hours a day of, of that early learning experience then it goes a long way for, for them and, and how successful they are in, in K-12. And so I just want to reiterate that. I love that. As, a, as an occupational therapist, one of the things that I do in education is early intervention and child find evaluations. And mm-hmm. just know parents, when you're out there, when your kids aren't in preschool, we may not see deficits that they're experiencing. But if they are in preschool, we might be able to identify those really early and get support really early, which can make a huge impact on the long-term outcomes. So definitely thinking preschool as an option is a huge thing to support your student in making those gains and having the ability to move forward and get the best possible outcome. And another gain that states are seeing is full-day kindergarten. And so where, where states can, again, allocate that resource that we are we're seeing that full day kindergarten really does make a difference for our children to be prepared for that, you know, to make those fourth grade reading scores and the, the eighth grade math scores and the you know yes. fourth grade science scores, right? And so that is important for them as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight and sharing your expertise and all of the information that's going on in your state and what you've learned across the country. We thank really appreciate it. Yes, of course. Well, we really appreciate it because I'm in New Mexico, Shannon's in Colorado. We've spoken with people in different states across the country, but I was really excited to have you on here, especially because you're on the Washington Board of Education, because they have been a model state in many areas. And I think we all can learn from that and grow. And it has been really interesting to hear because you're talking about both ends of the spectrum, that early childhood learning and then the later students where they're struggling and maybe getting overlooked. And so I think it's a great way. This is the last episode in our season and it's a great way to kind of round it out and encourage families that education is, we're as educators, we're looking at what's wrong and we're trying to improve it. And that mental health and social, emotional and behavioral issues are very high on the priority list. And it is important. So I really appreciate your input and all the great knowledge you brought to us today. Well, thank you. Thanks again for having me. Well, as a a final interview for this season, I felt like that was really well chosen because Angela or Dr. Griffin, I should say, I want to give her her props because she's done a lot of education and she is working so hard 
and making such a big difference. What a perfect person to talk to because we talked about early childhood and early learning and we talked about the end of education and graduation and trying to make sure kids see it through. And it was a great way to round out the season. We definitely covered the full gamut on that one for sure. And a conversation you and I were just having that listeners should hear is we are so excited about the people who chose to speak with us and talk to us about these issues. They are all such amazing educators. I'm so impressed with who is diving into education and trying to figure out some of these things. And we're digging around right now and doing research, trying to choose our kind of overarching topic for season two. We will keep you posted. When we figure that out. I know. It's, it might take us a hot minute. <laughs> we, would, we, we would take suggestions probably. <laughs> Absolutely. At this point, we do have our website, E the number two now. So E is an elephant, the number two now.com. And on there, you'll find Education Rx. It has its own page. And there's a place at the bottom of the page for you to give feedback. And you can email us. We're working on trying to get a voicemail set up. So I hope, I don't know if by episode eight, it'll be out, but we are working on that. And we want to hear stories about your experiences or if there was an episode that really gave you some good insights or meant something to you or if you have ideas for next season. Yes. I'm so excited that about this season. I, I mean, I just can't believe all the people we've talked to and all the information we've gathered. I feel like I've learned a ton. I feel like I've been inspired by so many people and just their energy and their passion and their vision is just amazing. And it's been such a cool journey. And as podcasters, we're learning how to podcast. We are figuring it out. I think episode eight sounds a lot better than episode one, even though I thought episode one was pretty decent. <laughs> that was more because Dr. Beard was really good. <laughs> we're get, we're, we've improved. <laughs> we're figuring out better questions. We're trying not to say yeah or um. <laughs> I'm not sure we can call ourselves podcasters for sure yet, though. I don't know if we've earned that title. I don't think we've graduated, but we're working on it. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Everybody who's been listening and following us on this journey, we are so grateful that you are listening, that you are giving feedback, that you are sharing information and starting conversations with the people in your world, whether you are a parent, a politician, an educator, a student, um, a neighbor, a community leader. We just appreciate that because at the end of the day, this is all about trying to find ways to improve the education system and get kids educated well so they can be phenomenal leaders. Shannon just nodded her head. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's late on a weeknight and we both worked full time all day long. So we're kind of running out of things to say. <laughs> I know I'm so tired. I know it. All right, people, I don't know. I have no idea what day of the week it is that you're listening to this, but I hope wherever you're at and whatever's going on, you're having a great time. And we just appreciate you listening. We appreciate all of our guests all season. Thank you so much. And keep your ears open. We're going to be coming back with season two very soon in the spring of 2023. Yay, that sounds so weird. Well, as we like to say at the end of every episode... Together, Together, we can do better. better. All right. We'll see you guys in early spring, or maybe it'll still be winter if it's February of 2023. Listen for us. Have a great season. Bye.